Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 189, Looking Back on the Calm Before the Storm, part two. Now, first, as always, a big shout out and thank you to our newest patrons. So thank you to Stefan Vidikov and his partner, Dora Torovceska, and Aaron Gary, as well as to Clint Dalton for increasing his support. Huge thank you to all of you for helping out the channel and just being wonderful people. Thank you for the messages as well. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we left off in 1904 with a humiliating Russian defeat against the Japanese, creating a kind of opening for Bulgaria to reshape its policies in the Balkans. The MRO and supremacists were both now completely devastated as the former broke into left and right wing factions, while the latter basically ceased to exist entirely. The old Stefan Stambolov party is ostensibly in charge in Sofia, but the reality is Ferdinand is the one calling the shots. In the wake of the Russo-Japanese War effectively ending any hopes for Russia to expand its power in the Far East, leading them to refocus on the Balkans, while Russia had managed to cooperate more with Austria-Hungary to maintain the status quo in the Balkans during recent years, this refocus was now reigniting their old rivalry for dominance in the region. So now Austria-Hungary wants to expand its power in the Balkans, and Germany is backing them in that goal while Russia and Britain are looking for ways to break up the Ottoman state and empower the Balkan states to stop that Austro-German expansion. In other words, while most of the great powers are still paying lip service to it, they've essentially accepted an end to the old status quo in the Balkans. So, after years of struggling between a population that wants change in Macedonia and great powers who do not, it seems that maybe now there's an opening for Bulgaria. However, taking advantage of that will require navigating the politics and alliances of those great powers, which as we all know is a very dangerous game. Russia's loss in, a war, in the war also triggered a revolution at home and that country descended into chaos. The Tsar was forced to allow for reforms, a constitution, and elections, but while this, along with a lot of soldiers and violence, did put down the revolution, huge swaths of the Russian population remained deeply unhappy with the situation at home. Back in Bulgaria, the massacre of a Bulgarian village in Macedonia by Greek forces triggered a wave of anti-Greek violence in Bulgaria. Now, up to this point, the roughly 2% of the Bulgarian population who were Greeks were somewhat disconnected from the population of the Greek state. But despite this, the Greeks in Bulgaria now became easy targets, and a lot of Bulgarians sort of took out their anger and frustration over the violence in Macedonia on them, hurting Bulgaria's image abroad and pushing about a quarter of the country's Greeks to leave the country. Early 1906, then saw Bulgaria's politics rocked by scandal, in which Prime Minister Petrov and Defense Minister Savov were accused of illegally profiting off the purchase of ammunition from Austria-Hungary 
during the Ilinden Uprising, when war with the Ottomans seemed possible. However, a later investigation did fail to prove any real corruption, but the scandal was still enough to get both to resign, leading to Dmitry Petkov becoming the new prime minister. Meanwhile, Several of the MRO's best leaders were killed in a series of Ottoman attacks, and the organization split between left and right factions deepened as many of the people who might have been able to join them together and kind of mend that split died. While the Greek government was trying to kind of calm violence in Macedonia after all the backlash that was generated, Low-level violence continued through the territory in 1906, and by 1907, that violence was so bad that many of the great powers were urging Athens to do something about it. The MRO then held a general congress, but instead of mending that left-right split, it only deepened as the left-wing left the meeting in disgust and held their own meeting elsewhere. Essentially, the two factions were now holding their own completely separate congresses, with the left wing even sentencing many of the right wing figures to death, leading to the assassinations of Sarafov and Gervanov. As a result, the right wing subsequently sentenced many of the left wing members to death on its own meeting in 1908. So, yeah, you could say the, the left right split is pretty well kind of entrenched at this point. Amidst all this, Ferdinand celebrated 20 years on the throne in early 1907, firmly in control of Bulgarian politics. However, shortly afterwards, he was met with student demonstrators at the opening of the National Theatre in Sofia, leading him to shut down Sofia University for six months and fire all of its professors. Legislation was also then passed to limit the ability of students and university staff to participate in politics and to limit the ability of everyone to criticize Ferdinand. However, the impossibility of finding adequate replacements for all those fired professors led to Ferdinand having to eventually back down and rehire everyone. Meanwhile, Ferdinand's year got even worse when his beloved mother died. Then, a disaffected clerk shot and killed Prime Minister Petkov, leading to a new cabinet being formed under Petr Gudev. So, yeah, a, a pretty chaotic year and a lot of bad news for Ferdinand. The new government under Gudev continued the work of the old one, cracking down on labor movements and the free press, obtaining more foreign loans to finance army expansion, and even creating a secret police force. Meanwhile, Ferdinand began making more foreign trips to test the water for Bulgaria to potentially declare full independence. On one of those trips, the Austrian emperor urged Ferdinand to hold off declaring independence just now, but Overall, Ferdinand continued to meet with foreign leaders and in particular look for ways to balance Bulgaria between the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians. By 1908, Ferdinand finally decided it was time to ditch the old Stambulovis party that he had been, that he had sort of had running the government for a while, and so he appointed a new government under Alexander Molinov of the Democratic Party. Again, showing how Ferdinand could still freely appoint governments from parties, even though in this case, the Democratic Party had won less than 5% of the vote in the most recent elections. So, yeah, we're seeing a repeat of this tendency where Ferdinand just picks literally whatever party he prefers, puts them in charge, and then in the subsequent elections, that party is able to use the kind of power of government to manipulate those elections and encourage people to vote for them 
and they tend to win a majority. Although it's not just the manipulation, it's also that a lot of people want offices, they want to get jobs from the new government, and so they also will tend to support whoever Ferd has, a, has kind of appointed in the assumption that they're going to win anyways. Anyways, though, around this time, Ferdinand also decided it was time to get married again. Even though his criteria were, let's say, rather specific, he wanted someone to look after his four children, to do charity work, you know, good PR and such, and to not really expect any genuine love or affection from him. Somehow, he very quickly found an ideal candidate, a German princess with close ties to the Russian imperial family. And... With that, Ferdinand married Eleonora Reutz Kostritz within just a few months. Though they did have some religious issues to deal with at the wedding, as she was a Lutheran, they figured it out. And, you know, the happy couple started their life together, though Ferdinand treated her quite badly. But despite this, she was a good sport and was ostensibly an excellent stepmother to the children, which you can imagine was good for them, having lost their mother at such a young age. So, We now arrive at the 1908 elections, a full five years since the last Bulgarian elections, which is the longest period in Bulgaria's history thus far. The Liberal Democratic Party Ferdinand had recently put in charge shockingly won in a landslide, again further reinforcing the pattern where Ferdinand chooses a ruling party and elections fraught with abuses basically act as a rubber stamp on that decision. But what was much more noteworthy here was who came in second place the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union. Recall, they've only recently even decided to participate in politics at all, but they still managed to get just a bit under 15% of the vote. This was in part due to their charismatic young leader, Alexander Stambuliski, and the difficult reality that, despite making up an enormous portion of the population, Bulgarian peasants were largely ignored by the country's political class. It also helped that the agrarians loudly denounced this whole political game that all the other mainstream parties were playing. So recall this, again, I keep talking about the phenomenon of Ferdinand sort of appointing whoever he wants. Even though, you know, obviously a lot of the political parties lose out on that, it seems none of them are willing to openly criticize that system because doing so would make them lose Ferdinand's potential favor in the future and you know, by the way, Bulgarian elections have worked during the 20 years of Ferdinand's rule. The only way you can actually become a governing party and get all those, you know, jobs for all your supporters that you want, all the cash, the money, potential corruption and such is by winning Ferdinand's favor. And so if you denounce the system, you basically take yourself out of the running forever. So As a result, the only parties that are willing to really criticize the system are the agrarians and the socialists. And as we've seen, the socialists at this point usually get maybe 3% or less of the vote, so they're pretty much a political non-entity. So the agrarians mark the first time a political party has kind of risen to some prominence in Bulgaria that is willing to criticize how Bulgarian politics is functioning. But for now, the agrarians are still very much on the outside looking in. Now, in the Ottoman Empire, fears that Russia and Great Britain would soon force them to give up Macedonia pushed some military officers to begin a mutiny against the Sultan in an attempt to preserve the Ottoman state in its current form. The Committee for Union and Progress, 
commonly known as the Young Turks, soon won a brief civil war and brought back the old Ottoman constitution along with some more liberal reforms. Jan Sandanski, who was basically the head of the MRO's left wing at this point, loudly supported the Young Turks and believed that their liberal reforms would be the best way to ensure that everyone living in Macedonia would have equal rights, you know, essentially the best way of achieving the goals that his left wing of the MRO had. Importantly, Sandanski also saw these reforms as the first of several stepping stones towards the, the kind of left-wing vision for an eventual Balkan federation, a federal Balkan state that would be sort of neutral in terms of religion and ethnicity and would kind of create equal rights for all the region's various groups. In a show of support, Sandanski actually disarmed his faction to kind of, basically, uh, you could say like a goodwill gesture uh, between him and the Ottoman government. However, these decisions to you know, support and disarm and then build closer ties with the Ottoman government further split the MRO's left wing into those who supported Sandanski and those who saw his moves as a betrayal. But in any case, the return to the Ottoman constitution meant that elections were now imminent. In response, the MRO's left and right wings founded their own political parties. However, other factions on the Bulgarian left condemned Sandanski and his new political movement. Overall, though, looking at the Young Turk Revolution, the Bulgarian population was mostly in favor of it because it was set to give more rights to Bulgarians living in Macedonia and Thrace. Even if, you know, some of the Macedonian revolutionary groups were still very mixed. Now, Prince Ferdinand and the Bulgarian government, on the other hand, were far more wary of the new men running the Ottoman Empire. They saw that the goal of the Young Turks was to revitalize the Ottoman Empire, and obviously that draws the kind of danger that they succeed and the Ottoman Empire is revitalized, which subsequently would make Bulgaria's territorial ambitions much more difficult to achieve. But for the time being, you know, the Young Turks are still fresh on the scene and it's, you know, no one has 2020 future vision. And so the government in Sofia is kind of waiting to see how events play out. They're not taking a firm stance for or against the Young Turks. Now, for their part, in these early days, the Young Turk government was very chaotic, unfocused, and lacked any firm allies on the international stage, which makes sense, right? It was some army officers who took over the government they didn't have a you know set foreign policy. They didn't have those kind of foreign relationships. So for now, the Young Turks essentially sent messages of friendship to all the European states and hoped that they'd be able to kind of figure out what their geopolitical strategy is as they go along. But within two months of the Young Turk Revolution, the Bulgarian government spotted an opportunity when its representatives in Constantinople were not invited to a gala to celebrate the Sultan's birthday. Now, this is for technical diplomatic reasons, because as we know, Bulgaria was not technically an independent state, so its representative wasn't, you know, of the kind of technical diplomatic level to be invited. But, you know, the Bulgarian government still took it as a slight and withdrew their representative. Then, the Oriental Railway Company... You know, the, the company that ran the Orient Express running from Constantinople up to Vienna had a strike which shut down that vital rail link. 
The company leadership asked the Bulgarian national rail operator if they could manage the rail lines until the strike was over, and they agreed. However, the Bulgarians didn't exactly intend to give those lines back. So, this forced takeover caused a new crisis, because soon the strike was over and the company demanded the lines back, and BDG, the Bulgarian railway company, said no. All this together, the diplomatic snub in Constantinople, the opportunity to take over these rail lines, and the broader geopolitical breaking down of this powerful status quo in the Balkans, together meant that officials in Sofia finally felt that the time was right for Bulgaria to declare its independence from the Ottoman Empire. So, secret talks began with the Ottomans, with the possibility of a formal Ottoman-Bulgarian alliance even being floated. Meanwhile, the great powers, particularly Russia and Great Britain, warned Bulgaria against declaring independence just yet. However, rumors that Austria-Hungary was about to annex Bosnia led Bulgaria to decide that it was going to push on regardless of what the great powers said. Ferdinand quickly returned to Bulgaria and on October the 5th, 1908, declared its full independence in Veliko Trnovo. At the same time, he declared himself Tsar of Bulgaria replacing his old title of Knyaz, or Prince. Now, within Bulgaria, most political parties immediately accepted Ferdinand's Declaration of Independence and his new title. But the agrarians denounced it because of the costs that it imposed. Uh, essentially, they agreed with independence in principle, but they felt that the way Ferdinand was going about it was creating a danger of war and generally just imposing undue burdens on the Bulgarian population. Now, besides the agrarians, they weren't the only ones that reacted badly. The great powers were not happy with how Bulgaria was acting in its Declaration of Independence, with Tsar Nicholas of Russia in particular calling Ferdinand a megalomaniac. All the great powers refused to recognize Bulgaria's independence and urged Sofia to stop military mobilization because, well, the prospect of war with the Ottomans was very real. It's kind of ironic that at this moment, you know, the prospect of a Bulgarian alliance with the Ottomans and a war against the Ottomans seems sort of like equally likely outcomes. But fortunately for everyone involved, both sides desperately wanted to avoid war. Bulgaria felt like it wasn't ready, and the Greeks had certainly showed that going to war alone against the Ottomans was potentially disastrous, while the Ottomans, you know, were run by the Young Turks who had just taken over a few months ago, they were just still getting their bearings and were definitely not feeling ready for a war. So they began to negotiate and talk and both sides gradually demobilized. But as they talked, one sticking point was the idea that Bulgaria should pay its portion of the Ottoman national debt. Meanwhile, though, Austria-Hungary went ahead and formally annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, Russia had an informal agreement that in return for accepting this annexation, that Russia would be formally allowed to move warships through the Dardanelles Straits. But the United Kingdom vetoed this idea, and the Russians soon realized that they had no recourse and they were just completely out of luck. Italy was also furious because under its own agreement with Austria-Hungary, Italy was supposed to be compensated with some Austrian territories on the Adriatic coast populated by Italians if Austria, you know, annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina. But when Italy brought this up, Austria-Hungary told them to go shove it, basically. So, yeah, relations were hurt pretty badly. 
In other words, Austria-Hungary's annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina deeply damaged relations with both Italy and Russia, pushing both of those powers further away from the German-Austro-Hungarian alliance kind of block of countries towards other allies. Now, lastly, Serbia was also furious because, well, not surprising, Bosnia and Herzegovina had a lot of Serbs in it, and Serbia didn't like the idea that a foreign power was annexing it instead of them. In response to the annexation, the island of Crete declared union with Greece, but interestingly enough, the Greeks said no. Now, this was because they didn't want to hurt their relationship with the Ottomans, both because they'd recently lost a war against the Ottomans and because they were at this point trying to play nice in a bid to get more concessions in Macedonia. So over the next few months, things gradually calmed down and Ottoman elections were finally held. Now, voting rights were pretty limited. This wasn't a, a wide franchise, but still, voting happened and both Bulgarian political parties representing the left and right factions of the MRO did quite badly. Sendansky's faction was particularly hurt by the fact that he was recently wounded in a failed assassination attempt. So, yeah, the Ottomans have a parliament, but with barely any Bulgarian representation in it. Now, getting back to Bulgarian-Ottoman negotiations, Russia around this time forwarded a proposal to forgive the remaining Ottoman debt left over from the 1877-1878 war and to have Bulgaria pay the Ottomans 82 million francs, which would be borrowed from Russia, and all this in exchange for the Ottomans accepting Bulgarian independence. So Bulgaria would still have to pay some money to the Ottomans, but not as much as the Ottomans were asking for, and Russia would kind of help make it happen. While the deals or the kind of details of that deal were still being worked out, religious fundamentalists upset at the liberalization reforms of the Young Turks mounted a counter-revolution. Now, remember, the Young Turks were implementing this old idea of Ottomanism, which is a kind of the idea of creating a pan-Ottoman identity that would exist regardless of religion or ethnicity. But a lot of the Muslim Turks, who were the you know, largest religion and the largest ethnic group, were upset at the prospect of losing out on some of their prestige and their influence and their positions. So yeah, they're mounting a counter-revolution. Now, they initially succeeded in pushing government forces out of Constantinople, but within a few weeks, a pro-government army, which interestingly enough included a Bulgarian volunteer unit led by Sandansky himself, retook the city and crushed the counter-revolution. Whether fairly or not, the Sultan was accused of collaborating with the counter-revolutionaries and was replaced by his brother. However, Sandansky and many others felt betrayed by the Young Turks because they wanted the Ottoman Empire to be a republic. They were anti-monarchists and felt that retaining the Sultan as a position sort of went against the core values that the Young Turks had kind of proclaimed before and the reason that people like Sandansky had supported them. But while all that was happening, that Ottoman parliament, created from those elections, finally accepted the deal with Bulgaria and recognized its independence. It was more or less that Russian deal we just talked about. Once the Ottomans kind of broke the ice, all the other European states very quickly followed suit, and Bulgaria was now a normal, fully independent and recognized European state. However, around the same time, the Ottomans also fully abandoned their reforms in Macedonia, 
and actually went so far as to ban any organization connected with a specific minority group, meaning all those Bulgarian political parties were now illegal. So, you know, putting the Sultan's brother in power and the end of these reforms and these new laws together, all this kind of marked a shift in the direction of the Young Turks away from that former idealized vision of multi-ethnic Ottomanism and towards a more traditional authoritarianism. And as a result, it became clear to people like Sandansky, who had placed so much hope in the Young Turks, that basically they'd been betrayed. Meanwhile, in Crete, military officers were upset that Greece wasn't willing to embrace union with Crete, as well as you know, seeing that Greece was badly run and was having all these problems and desperately needed reform. So a lot of these military officers formed a group called the Military League. After this was formed, the Greek prime minister ordered a crackdown on the organization, and they responded by enacting a bloodless coup and created a new government, and they subsequently demanded that this government enact reforms. Now, even though they just created the government, it kind of dragged its feet and the league's unity began to kind of fracture and it became less effective. And so ultimately, some of its members went to Crete to convince a politician there to come be their leader, resulting in the rise to power of Venizelos, who, remember that name, he was will come to dominate Greek politics for decades. Around the same time, Ferdinand was making the diplomatic rounds in Europe. In Germany, he got into a little spat with the Kaiser before he did the same with the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, so not playing very nice. Then after these incidents, he made a triumphant visit to Paris. And together, all this seemed to indicate that Bulgaria was perhaps moving away from Germany and Austria-Hungary and more towards the Entente, i.e. Russia, Britain, and, and, uh, and France, rather. But Ferdinand was always very careful not to make any firm promises, but you know, to lean this way, lean that way, and ensure that both factions were always looking at how they could woo Bulgaria. Getting into 1910, that year saw an incident in Ruse where a marriage between a Bulgarian and a Turk led to a violent clash between local members of the Turkish community and Bulgarian police. But despite the incident and all the deaths that resulted, Ferdinand managed to have a productive meeting with the Sultan and generally improved the relationship with the Ottomans after all the difficult relationships and negotiations and such of the previous two years. Meanwhile, more and more people were feeling disillusioned with the Young Turks and many former MRO members decided that it was now time to return to armed struggle. And so they formed a new organization that I'll refer to as the VMRO because the names just get longer and longer. While the VMRO was made up of mostly former members of the left-wing faction, it adopted a more right-wing stance, which was critical of the removal of a kind of Bulgarian character to the Macedonian struggle. You'll recall that the left-wing had tried to kind of remove references to Bulgarians and to open up the their, their organization to people of different ethnicities and different faiths because they, again, wanted more of a, a kind of universal uh, Macedonian autonomous state that would welcome people of all faiths and all ethnicities and not just for Macedonia to join Bulgaria. So again, even though the new VMRO is mostly former left-wing faction members, they took that more right-wing stance of advocating for Macedonian autonomy and ultimately union with Bulgaria. Ultimately, 
all the former MRO factions, so former right-wing members, former left-wing members, basically everyone except for Sandansky and his supporters joined the new VMRO. Though by this point, even Sandansky had actually denounced the Young Turks for their abandoning of all their formal kind of beliefs and uh, reforms, but Sandansky still was not willing to join this new organization because it wanted the more kind of Bulgarian character to its struggle. Now, by this point, Bulgaria was in a tough spot. It still lacked any firm allies among the great powers. You know, Ferdinand's been out there kind of wheeling and dealing, but avoiding any firm commitments. And so Bulgaria doesn't have any firm friends. It's got the Young Turks cracking down on ethnic Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire. Serbia is starting to get more involved in Macedonia again. And, well, Bulgaria is looking for ways to achieve its goals in Macedonia, and the difference between what the Bulgarian people want and what was realistic was becoming ever larger and more problematic. Early 1911 saw Bulgarian politics shift towards a range of constitutional changes, which were designed to update Ferdinand's title, create some more modern ministries, and make some other modernizations to the way the Bulgarian state functioned. While preparations were underway to make these constitutional changes, Ferdinand dismissed the Molinov government, whose hard stance on Macedonia had made it a little more difficult for him to do his diplomatic maneuvering, in favor of a new government run by Ivan Geshov and his People's Party. Now, this new government was definitely more fiscally prudent. It was a bit more pro-Russia, but overall, it wanted to remain in power long enough to make serious, lasting internal reforms. It was critical of the previous parties that tend to kind of come and go really, relatively quickly and undo what the last one had done. Now, to make this happen, the People's Party entered into an alliance with the Progressive Liberal Party, and together they won a huge majority in elections for the Grand National Assembly, which was about to convene to amend the Constitution. At the Assembly, the Agrarians and the Socialists made a big scene over their opposition to Ferdinand, but it made little practical difference, minus hurting the agrarians' image among some more conservative peasants who had supported them despite their kind of anti-monarchism. But crucially, the National Assembly amended the Constitution, doing all the things I just mentioned, but also allowing Tsar Ferdinand to make secret treaties without the knowledge or approval of the National Assembly, as this was seen as a crucial kind of power for him to have in order to build the anti-Ottoman coalition that was now starting to gradually take shape. Prime Minister Geshev, meanwhile, focused mostly on internal affairs, reforming Bulgaria's fiscal policy, reducing taxes on peasants through a progressive tax system, and promoting industry and agriculture. The coalition that he led won a solid majority in the 1911 regular elections, and once again the agrarians came in second. So, the Geshev-led coalition was sort of continuing its internal work, while Ferdinand mostly led Bulgaria's foreign policy. In that realm, Russia finally realized a Bulgarian-Ottoman alliance wasn't going to happen, and so it now sought to help Bulgaria and Serbia mend their relationship in order to form an alliance which could act as a bulwark against Austro-Hungarian expansion in the Balkans. Now, Ironically, the last thing Russia wanted was for this alliance to be used against the Ottomans, but it seems everyone involves willing to kind of suspend disbelief and believe what they wanted to, so everyone kind of moved ahead in building that relationship. But for now, Serbia and Bulgaria remained at odds over Macedonia. But things began to change when Italy declared war on the Ottomans in September of 1911. 
Now, the Italians were by this point feeling left out of European colonialism, particularly because well, they didn't have an empire, they had only recently unified, and the Austrians had just denied them the territories on the Adriatic, and so they wanted to take Libya from the Ottomans. Now, the Entente, you know, Russia, France, and the UK gave them support, which helped push Italy further away from the people who were technically their allies, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians. But overall, in this war, both sides were very unprepared. But Italy's much more powerful fleet and the isolation of Libya helped Rome win anyways. Back in the Balkans, the Viemaro was by now led by Todor Alexandrov, who announced that it was returning to the political stage and was opposing the Ottomanization pro uh, process in Macedonia, which, to be fair, wasn't really what the Young Turks were doing anyways, but still. You know, the VMRO was announcing to the great powers, announcing to the world that it was kind of returning to the old school tactics of the MRO. It returned to a policy of making attacks to provoke an Ottoman response and thereby garner European sympathy. So again, the, the old tactics that we used to see. This resulted in a series of assassinations and attacks throughout Macedonia, which then resulted in a lot of bloodshed and Ottoman reprisals. All this violence actually turned many Macedonian locals against the VMRO. Now, all that brings us to 1912, where early in the year, the Second Albanian Revolt in as many years saw them demand more rights and autonomy from the Ottomans. Being distracted by the war with Italy, the Ottomans entertained the idea of an autonomous Albania, greatly worrying both Serbia and Bulgaria, who feared it might include parts of Macedonia that they wanted. And... All this further increased pressure to form that anti-Ottoman alliance as soon as possible because, well, the Ottomans were weak and fighting the Italians, they were weak fighting the Albanians, and the Albanians might get their stuff. Meanwhile, Ferdinand was out there working his magic, ensuring both major European political alliances were basically working hard to court him and Bulgaria. Now, around this time, negotiations with Serbia finally concluded, and it was decided that they would divide Macedonia into three regions. One that was going to go to Serbia, one to Bulgaria, and a third in the middle that would be allocated based on Russian arbitration, which, crucially, both sides assumed that the Russians would favor them in. Negotiations with Greece actually contained no provisions about dividing territory, again because both sides assumed the situation on the ground would favor them. Lastly, Bulgaria obtained a basic verbal agreement with Montenegro. With that, all the countries involved in this new Balkan League were in agreement, roughly, about participation in a war against the Ottomans. But crucially, all of them still had overlapping maximalist goals and somewhat unclear, ambiguous agreements about them, laying the foundation for future conflict. But, with pressure to act as soon as possible, both because of the geopolitical situation and domestic populations that wanted war now, there was little else that Balkan diplomats could do. As the summer of 1912 arrived, Viamoro lashed out at the Bulgarian government after having learned about the proposed division of Macedonia, and to make matters worse, the Serbian prime minister died, bringing a much more hardline government to power there. As a result, this new Serbian government worked to lay the groundwork for taking more of Macedonia than they had agreed to with the Bulgarians. Still, the Bulgarians, unaware of this, 
work with their allies to come up with a plan, and together they decided to wait until the fall to start the war. Meanwhile, the Young Turks ran a rather rigged election, convincing a group of army officers to work to restore proper constitutional government in the Ottoman Empire. They managed to get Parliament and the government to resign and to call for new elections, but while that whole process was still in action, was still underway, Montenegro declared war in October. And within days, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece had joined, and the First Balkan War had begun. And... That's it for this season. Next time, we'll dive straight into the First Balkan War as we start Season 9 of the Bulgarian History Podcast. I assure you, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for maps, images, descriptions, timelines, all that great stuff. And I'll catch you in the next one.